Well, my Easter message is out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, you want to open to that passage. We're going to talk about the rich man and Lazarus and a voice from the dead. Jesus says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No. Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I want you to consider with me, imagine if you will, true story, the funeral service of a man that I knew who consistently resisted becoming a Christian. Nothing is Christian friends, Christian family, myself. Nothing that was said or did or done was sufficient to break through his shell of self-sufficiency. He fancied himself a self-made man. He did it all. Wouldn't acknowledge God. Wouldn't acknowledge God's help. Many of us know people like that. You see, success and wealth had insulated him from the recognition of his real need, the recognition of his real weakness. He was impervious to any efforts to introduce him to Jesus or any assurance of eternal life. 
He acted like he could live forever. Nothing would defeat him. Everything came easily to him. And you know, I believe he does live forever. My concern is where and how. What a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy. I pose a hypothetical question to you. What would this man have said to all of those present at that funeral? What would he have said if he had been able to return and speak about life after death? Would he have warned them? Would he have alarmed them about what it was like to spend eternity in irrevocable separation from God and family and friends? Would he have been able to come back and say, it's all true. Everything you were telling me was true. The Bible is true. There is a heaven and there is a hell. It's not a party. There's no bar. I'm all alone in my pain and my anguish and torment. There's nobody else. What would he say? What if we could hear voices from the dead? What would they tell us? What difference would it make to us? Would some of us be assured and others of us alarmed? There are many people with a growing interest today in death and dying. And there is a great fascination in the accounts of people who have died and come back to life after being dead for a few moments or such. Books have been written, testimonies have been made, and no doubt you've heard these. And, and, and they're basically people who come back and they said, you know, it's, there's nothing to be afraid of. I saw this beautiful, warm, white light, and I was drawn to this light. It's, it's all peace. I want to tell you, that's Deception. The Bible says that that Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light. If people have truly died and gone to the other side, they come back. If they come back, they come back with one of two perceptions. One of Jesus, and they can't say enough about him, and they can't live their life enough for him. Or they come back terrified by what they've seen. There is no middle ground. There is no white light. There is no warmth that assures you that everything is going to be okay. There's a great fascination, and a lot of people are deceived by that. Have you ever wondered if any of those people that that we have known who've died, have you ever wondered if they have ever wanted to come back across the Great Divide to tell us what they've experienced after death. It's all true. 
What would they say to us? And would we listen? The rich man of this account we just read wanted to send a message back to his five brothers, didn't he? See, he had died, and he'd he'd found himself in the torment of hell. How he got there. What he found. And his anguished response is the compelling account that Jesus tells. It's a gripping drama, if you will, in three acts. Act 1 begins in verse 19. Act 1 is a study in contrasts. It's a picture of the extremities of the rich and the poor. Jesus, in one sentence, in verse 19, he describes the rich man dressed in purple and fine linen. Only the finest. And in the Greek text, it it, it comes across this way. Continually dressed in only the finest. He lived in luxury. Again, continually. In fact, the words are every day. The picture is one of limitless wealth. Indulgent luxuriant prosperity. He had all he could ever want in life. That's, a, that's, a, that's something to meditate on, isn't it? Do we have all that we could ever want or do we always want more? Want more, want more. He had all he could want. He lived an indulgent, prosperous life. He's not said, by the way, if you read the passage again, he's not said to have committed any grave sin. Nothing in that sense is laid at his doorstep in terms of a specific sin. But he lived only for himself. He lived only for himself. It was in that that his condemnation lay. He lived only for himself. The last two words of verse 19, every day. Every day. Those those words are the most telling aspect of Jesus' description. Every day he lived for himself. His feasting, his frolic, if you will, knew no limit. No day was holy for him in his Continual search for pleasure and satisfaction through all that he could taste and touch. There was no evidence of any reverence for a Sabbath even. And there are many people today, Christians included, who do not reverence the Sabbath. Who do not honor God on a Sabbath. Dismiss it. Lazarus, on the other hand, is a startling contrast. His name means, God is my help. How ironic. His life seems to contradict his very name. Now, if this is a parable, it is 
the only one in which a character is given a name by Jesus. None of the other parables have named characters. This is the only one. Which leads me to think that very possibly this may not actually be a parable. It may be a true account. And each day, Lazarus was dropped at the gate to the rich man's mansion. He longed, we're told, to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In that time, food was eaten basically with the hands, and in most wealthy houses, the hands were cleansed by wiping them on bread, which in turn was thrown away. This was what the Lazarus longed to eat, the discarded bread that the rich man had thrown away after he'd wiped his hands. It was only the dogs who came and ministered to Lazarus, licking his wounds. And for a Jew, even, even a pathetic beggar, for dogs to lick your wounds. How could God, how could God allow this horrible inequity to go on? Is there no justice? Act one comes to a close with no answer to that question, is there no justice? You see, Act 1 comes to a close with both Lazarus, Lazarus and the rich man dying. Act 2 opens in verse 22. And we witness a stunning reversal. The curtain of eternity is drawn aside and we, we get a glimpse of what happens after death. We're ushered into Hades. Hades was the unseen world beyond the grave. It was the realm of departed spirits. According to Jewish and Hebrew tradition, Hades was comprised of two compartments. The first was paradise. Paradise was a realm of peace and blessing and reward. The second compartment was known as Gehenna. And Gehenna was named after the burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was a, a place of torment in the flames of punishment. Lazarus was in paradise, and the rich man was in the fires of Gehenna. In verse 23, we transition to act three of this drama. Our attention now is on the rich man, and he's in anguish. He realizes where he is and that his condition in that torment is irrevocable. He has no power any longer to order underlings to satisfy his every whim and desire. And worse yet, he's able to see Lazarus enjoying the peace and comfort of paradise. And then he calls out to Abraham. Assuming in some sense that this world's values still applied in his mind, 
he calls out to Abraham and he says, in effect, have that poor man Lazarus minister to me. Can you imagine? But note Abraham's response in verse 25. Tender yet firm. Son, in your lifetime, you received your good things. Notice the personal pronoun three times. In your lifetime, you received your good things. But notice the contrast. He says, Lazarus received bad things. Not his bad things. He was not responsible for the evils he had suffered. Important distinction in that culture, for in Jewish culture, it was a, it was a, a dominant thought that whatever happened to you in your life, you deserved it, or uh, your parents did something that would result in your getting this grief. The implication from Jesus is clear that's not true. If you harken back to John chapter 9, the man born blind, Jesus' disciples say, Lord, is it, is it because of his fault, something he did in the womb, or his parents that he's born blind? And Jesus said, neither. And you see that same principle here. Another factor in verse 26 is revealed to us. In the afterlife, there is no passing from one state to the other. All expectation of relief and or release is gone. The rich man's anguish is sealed. It's sealed. But then in verse 27 and 28, he remembers his five brothers. Probably the first selfless thought he's ever entertained. They must be alerted about what happens after death. They must be warned of the fate of those who do not believe or do not obey. And Abraham's answer is sharp and to the point. They have the scriptures. They have the scriptures, God's word calling for justice, faithfulness, and obedience. He says, in effect, in verse 29, God's word is sufficient. See, that's a question that, that we have to ask ourselves today. Is God's word sufficient for me? Or do I give the same answer that the rich man did or many, many people give today in verse 30? No, but... <laughs> God's word is, no, but do we object? Is God's word sufficient? Or do we say we need more? I wonder if we, if we can agree with the rich man. I wonder if our hearts resonate to the rich man's plea. Well, yes, I, I know. I know God's word is sufficient. But if someone, <coughs> if someone would come from the other side and, and just affirm and tell us. I 
Yes, we'd say, Abraham, send someone. Send someone. Warn the people. The people? The people? It's I. It's you. It's me. Shock us with the traumatic truth before it's too late. What do we need? Is God's word sufficient? Or are we so stuck in our lethargy, in our self-centeredness, that we feel the need for somebody to come and shock us? In verse 31, he reaffirms, if they don't believe the Bible, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So the curtain closes on our drama. What does this all mean? What can we do about the alarming story that Jesus tells that has been played out before the eyes of our imagination. Jesus has allowed us to see not only what is beyond life, but also the inseparable link between life as we live it now and how we will spend eternity. That's a profound thing. How we spend our life now and where we'll spend eternity, there is that incredible link Jesus, Jesus tells us five things in this story. Five very important lessons. These are take-home things. Number one, he's told us that we will all live after we die. We're all going to live. Immortality is not our choice. I talk to people, no doubt you have, and maybe someone sitting here this morning who says, you know, when you die, it's it. That's all, over. That's all over. No more life. Well, you may believe that, but because you believe it doesn't make it true. When everything in our being screams out life, doesn't it? We're built with a hunger to live. It's not our favorite thing to be sick. We want to be well. We want to be better. I, su I suggest to you that therein is a tremendous hint to life after death. We want to believe. We desire to believe. Death is not an ending. It is a portal. It is a transition in immortal life. When our physical existence ends here, we will live on in spirit. Yes, at some point our, our spirits will be reunited with resurrected bodies, but until that day happens, we will live on in spirit. That is, that intangible part of us that's composed of our intellect, our will, and our emotions, our sense of identity. And these are impervious to the power of death. That is both awesome and frightening at the same time. 
It is the basis of our hope and also our deepest anxiety. All of our fears have their root in the ultimate fear of dying. We all have to face it. And there is in every one of us even the tiniest fear of dying, of leaving that which we know, that which is, is a source of comfort, family, loved ones, familiar surroundings. And all of our fears are rooted in that fear. The question always lurks, what's going to happen when I die? Oh, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, but you know what? Down in the deepest recesses, there still is that question. What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? What's the experience when I die? The second truth that Jesus tells us is that there are two distinct realms of life after death. Only two. Only two. He leaves no room for doubt about the reality of heaven or hell. You notice, if you come from a Catholic background as I did, uh, I, I was taught that there was a purgatory. That's a kind of in-between place. And, and I knew that I was never good enough to go to heaven. And I certainly didn't want to go to the other place. I used to literally pray for purgatory. Because purgatory, you know, if you spend this incredible amount of time you, uh, of purgation, that's why it's purgatory, uh, you'll be, you'd be uh, uh, cleansed of your sins, venial sins. Mortal sins always sent you to hell. No chance. I used to pray, God, just get me into purgatory. I don't care how long it takes, I'll be happy. <laughs> there is no purgatory. There is no in-between place. There's only heaven and hell. And Jesus talks about them both. Throughout the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Later on, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, pray this way. Pray to your Father who is in heaven. He tells us that our ultimate reward was to be in heaven. And Jesus assured his disciples, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Oh. You remember when Jesus hung on the cross, he, he, was, he was flanked by two thieves, and on the one side was the penitent thief, and he promised that penitent thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. His teaching of hell was no less vivid, no less clear. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, he spoke of the fire of hell. In Mark chapter 9, verse 45, he warned of the danger of going to hell. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, Don't be afraid of man who can only kill the body, but fear the one that can destroy both body and soul in hell. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, he confronted the religious leaders of his day he said, you brood of vipers, you snakes. 
How will you escape being condemned to hell? Clearly, Jesus teaches that there are only two distinct realms of life after death. When you read your Bible, you can't help but clearly see that Jesus Jesus came not just to be a good teacher, not just to be a prophet, not just to be a good man, not just to teach us morals and ethics. Jesus Christ came to liberate us from the power of Satan, from the power of death, and from the power of hell. The Apostle Paul reminds us in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, he said that we are by nature objects of wrath. God isn't sending people to hell. He's trying to save them from hell. He sent Jesus so that we would believe and he would pluck us as brands from the fire. We're on our way there. We are by nature rebels. Those of you who are parents, you see this reflected in those precious little babies and among the very first words they learn is that two-letter word beginning with N, ending with O. You think, my, where did this come from? This precious little thing that I've nursed and hugged and loved and fed and changed. And all of a sudden they're standing there defiantly saying, no! Evidence of our innate rebellious nature. We are rebels at heart. And Jesus came to save us from all that, to deliver us. And he's the only one that can. Beloved, hell is eternal separation from God. Hell is eternal separation from all of the resources of his love and his mercy and his grace, his kindness and his forgiveness. Jesus came into our fallen creation to save sinners. Every Christian knows by heart the verse John 3.16. Recite it with me, would you please? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have life everlasting. Simple, profound truth. He's come to save us. Save us from hell. Save us from damnation that we might have life. The third thing that Jesus teaches us in this story, and this is key, what we believe, note this please, what we believe and what we do about what we believe determines our eternal destiny. Lazarus did not go to Abraham's side because he was poor. Nor did the rich man go to hell because he was rich. The rich man's destination was sealed by the gulf which existed in his soul long before he died. Jesus' story teaches us that we will continue in eternity in the spiritual condition in which we have spent the years of our life on earth. I had an old football coach in high school who told me, Aaron, 
You're going to play the game like you practice. If you practice sloppy, you're going to play sloppy. If we live this life sloppy, we have no hope of glory. You cannot presume just because you say you believe. Your life has to be a testimony of what you say is true of you. And very often our life speaks louder than our words, doesn't it? Long before he experienced hell, the poverty of this rich man's life in the midst of his great wealth was that his existence was separated from reality. And again, long before he experienced hell, there was a great gap between him and an active implementation of however little he may have known and or believed from his Jewish faith. We presume he was Jewish. He not only neglected the rites and rituals of Judaism, of his, of his religion, of his faith, but he neglected the basic requirements of the law and the prophets about care for the poor and the needy. He was so completely centered on himself, so completely centered on his possessions, that he doubtless even noticed Lazarus at his gate, oblivious, just oblivious. I don't want to press the story too far, nor have this teach more than Jesus intended. By that I mean clearly that we do not believe that caring for the poor will get us into heaven. But in the light of all the other parables on the judgment of God, we are told that whatever we do to the least of these, to the lonely, to the lost, to the impoverished, to the hungry, to the sick, we do to whom? Jesus. You see, there is a, a tragic insensitivity. A tragic insensitivity which engulfs us when we divide belief from caring about people. And that insensitivity usually is the result of an inadequate relationship with the source, with the Savior, with Jesus. In very many, very many respects, you can use, you can draw an analogy from the rich man and apply it to the church. The modern church, quite frankly, doesn't care about the lost. The modern church is not reaching the lost. The modern church, much like the rich man, is self-satisfied. The modern church, the modern Christian, cares only about his or her personal peace and affluence. Don't bother me by this inconvenience. Don't make me look at that. I just want to feel good about myself. The modern church is missing the mark. There's a separation in the heart of the modern church from who they are and what the calling is. Jesus left us with this profound commission. What was the commission he left us with? Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make what? Disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
you have to sit here this morning and you have to say to yourself, who and when was the last time I led someone to Jesus Christ and made a disciple? Who am I discipling today? You have to ask yourself that question. Or is it an imposition? Is it an inconvenience? Is it something I'd rather avoid? Am I just content seeking after the pleasures of today? Oh, but I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Beloved, I, I want to tell you, belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is the basis for eternal life. But remember, faith without works is as dead as works without faith. See, the acid test of our faith is in our relationships. The acid test of our faith is in our relationships. What kind of husband am I? What kind of wife am I? What kind of parent am I? What kind of sibling am I? What kind of employee am I? What kind of employer am I? What kind of Christian am I? Do I, have, do I have Jesus' heart for the lost? The Gospels record that Jesus looked out on the, on the crowds, on the multitudes. He had compassion on them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, harassed. He cared. He's turned to us and he says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. But while I'm gone, the Holy Spirit's going to live in you. And I want you to have the same heart that I, that I have for the lost. Go get them. Tell them. Compel them. Don't be self-satisfied. Don't sit on the sidelines. You see, the rich man had a had a growing chasm in his inner being. And I believe this is true in many, many people who profess to be Christians. And the gulf was between him and God. And that manifested itself in a gulf between him and himself. He lost touch. He lost touch with the reality. And in that sense, it, it, reality is a, just a basic morality, a basic caring Right and wrong were now relative only to that which served his purposes. Don't, don't upset my life. I don't want to hear these things. Don't push my buttons. <laughs> don't remind me of what my responsibility is as a Christian. And then finally, when this leprous beggar was laid at his doorstep, he was simply an intrusion on the private world of the rich man and his sumptuous satisfaction in life. Church, what's it going to take? On this day when we remember and celebrate and exult in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and we look forward to being with him one day, we have to stop 
and look at our own lives. What does my life really reflect? Am I just all talk? Or am I carrying out this great commission? You see, the rich man died out of relationship with God. He died out of relationship with himself. It was all about what he had. He lost sight of who he was supposed to be. He died out of relationship with people in need. Beloved, there are people all around us who are in need. All around us who are in spiritual need. Will we take the time? Will we put on the heart of Jesus? The rich man died not a contributor. He died a consumer. He died a consumer. What an absolute tragedy. Would you agree? The fourth thing that Jesus teaches, he exposes the impotence of death. Death is absolutely incapable of destroying the inner person. Both Lazarus and the rich man were alive in paradise and in hell, respectively, after death. And immediately after death. No delay. Death did not destroy their consciousness. Death did not destroy their memory. Death did not destroy their self-identity. The rich man knew who he was, albeit he was devoid of all of his wealth. He had the anguishing legacy of remembering what he had been and what he had failed to do. And there was no escape. He experienced regret, but could do nothing about it. And that, I think, is the most disturbing description of hell imaginable, to spend eternity in the burning flames of remorse and self-incrimination. Kicking myself forever. There was a time when I could have done something about this. There was a time they told me, they told me, why didn't I listen? Why did I ignore the warnings? We all know the grief of life's might-have-beens, don't we? We know the grief of life's if-onlys. But on this side of the grave, there is always the hope that we can do or we can say something to change the regrets of life. Isn't that true? Death, however, dashes that hope forever. We will have to live with the person we have become with all of life's regrets forever. It doesn't have to be. You can stop. You can repent. You can change that today. The rich man's sin was one of neglect. Do we neglect what God says to us? Do we neglect it? Do we put it off? Even as I say these words, I know there are people sitting in these chairs this weekend who are going to say, yeah, 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 but they're not going to do anything about it. Not going to do anything about this. No urgency, no appeal is going to move them. 
because of this widening gulf between them and God. Although they profess to believe, there is question, there's a reason to question whether they do or not. The rich man's sin was one of neglect. And what he failed to do was caused by the person he had become. Now he would have to live with that person for all the rest of eternity. What's it like to be around a miserable, hurting person? Is it the delight of your life? Imagine being around yourself for all eternity, if that's you. The final thing that Jesus teaches is that death is final. Death is final and that there can be no communication with those on this side of the grave. The most dreadful experience of hell must be the desire of those who are there to somehow warn those who are here, to cry out to them. And though their screams may be loud, guess what? No one hears. They're all alone in the darkness, the bottomless pit, forever, no hope, crying out in anguish, excruciating, inextinguishable anguish. And no one hears. No one hears. Now, there have been claims of mysterious manifestations and even communications from the dead in dreams and through mediums. People on TV gather people together. Let's, let's, let's all focus and concentrate. And we'll hear from your husband, your children, your mother, your father, your so-and-so. These things are not of God. They're of the devil. How can you be so sure? Because Jesus teaches us that death is final, and in this parable, there is no communication from the other side. None. Don't be duped. Well, I had a dream. My mother spoke to me. It was a dream. It was a dream. Beloved, there is only one voice back from the dead. And that is the voice of, guess who? His name is what? Jesus. He's the only voice. He's the only voice. He alone has come back. He alone has conquered our last enemy, death. He alone speaks. He's alive. He's alive. He speaks with undeniable and irresistible clarity. There's no doubt in Revelation chapter 1, he says to John, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You know, Abraham's words to the rich man, that the, uh, the living would not listen or be persuaded if someone rises from the dead, those words are both true and false. Though many respond to the resurrection Jesus, many do not. Jesus said it, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks this very pointed question. What's the question? Do you believe this? That question must be answered. It must be answered today. For on the day of judgment, you will be held accountable. You heard clearly when the question was posed to you, do you believe? What is your answer today? Give an answer, yes or no. You must answer it. Everything now and forever depends upon how you answer that question. Do you believe? You have to settle it. And your life must reflect your answer. It's not sufficient that you just say, yes, I believe. And then you go your merry way. Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, you must what? First, deny yourself. The very thing that the rich man was unwilling to do. You must deny yourself and be willing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus every day thereafter. It doesn't get much simpler than that. It doesn't get much simpler than that. What's your answer? Yes or no? Yes, I'll follow. Or no? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus is the lone voice from the dead. And our basis of eternal hope is in our response to His voice. There is no other voice. He said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What a beautiful picture of fellowship. Requires us to hear the voice. Open the door. Invite him in. Take over. Jesus, you take over. Amen? Happy Easter, huh? Father, thank you. Thank you again for the things you've done and the things you continue to do. And thank you that your word is sufficient. You call us to read it and you call us to obey it. Strengthen us, O God, that we may indeed live our lives in a manner worthy of you in every respect. Open our eyes to those ways in which we will, we've been living self-satisfied lives, insulated lives, isolated lives. Open our eyes to the harvest, to the people all around us who need you while there's still time. How we live our life and the words that we say. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a couple more minutes. I don't want to let this time pass by without addressing some of you. Some of you have come to a point of decision in your life. Even if you profess to be a Christian, you see the areas in your life that you have to surrender. Those safe areas, those comfortable areas. The whole proposition of learning to deny yourself and to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. This is what it comes down to. 
There may be some this morning who you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you're invited by a family member or friend. But today is the day of salvation. There is a heaven, there is a hell. All of us are born lawbreakers. We break God's law. We're accountable to Him. If you object and you say, but I'm a good person. If you live by the law, you're judged by the law. You're not good enough. You don't keep the law perfectly. You're guilty. On judgment day, God will say, away. Today is the day. Don't put it off any longer. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. If there's shortcomings in your life, if there's areas where you know God has spoken to you, today is the day. Yes, Lord. As we sang that song earlier. Jesus said you, you must confess your faith. You must be open about it. I want to give you an opportunity this morning, maybe for the first time, to be open, to take a step. If you've made a decision for Jesus, if you've made a decision this morning to say, yes, Lord, then while everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to confess it. I want you to raise your hand. I want you to signal me. Say, Pastor, I heard what you said. I heard what God said, and I'm committing my life this morning to Jesus. Lift your hand now. Anybody at all? Good. I see these hands down here. This hand on the aisle. I see this hand over here. Back here on the aisle. I see those hands way in the back. Okay. Right down here in the way in the back on the aisle. I see those hands. Anybody else? Don't let this time pass. Today is the day. Don't put it off. Don't be like the rich man. Anybody else? I see your hand too. God bless you. One last time. You know who you are. And I know God is speaking to more people. Amen and amen. Right, church? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you appreciate the music? I want to encourage you to stand with us. The second half of the music is just absolutely spectacular. Let's stand and let's worship God, shall we?